This is the BBC. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello. In the Middle Ages, most Christians in the West hoped that when they died, their souls would go straight to purgatory uh, until what they believed was an imminent final judgment. Only saints would go straight to heaven, there were few of them, while unrepentant citizens, sinners, would go directly to hell. Purgatory was thought of as more than an idea. It was a real place, somewhere, perhaps under Mount Etna, or on a mountain in the southern hemisphere, or on an island on an Irish loch. And there your soul would burn in purifying flames until, made clean, you would be ready to enter heaven. And for how long, as for how long you spent there, that would depend on whether you'd bought indulgences while alive or been on a pilgrimage or whether your surviving relatives prayed for your soul. With me to discuss the rise and fall of purgatory are Laura Ash, Associate Professor of English and Fellow of Worcester College at the University of Oxford, Matthew Traherne, Professor of Italian Literature at the University of Leeds, and Helen Foxhall Forbes, Associate Professor of Early Medieval History at Durham University. Laura Ash, um, before purgatory, there was a general sense, uh, was there a general sense of what happened to the souls of the dead? Well, in early Christianity, there was actually a comparatively vague sense of the afterlife. Uh, in the Old Testament, we have a shadowy underworld, Sheol, which is often translated as hell and is associated with the grave and darkness and that God can protect you from this, could guide you through it or past it or perhaps save you from it. But there's not a great deal more than that. And then in the Gospels, we have um, direct statements about a binary between heaven and hell, that the blessed will go to eternal life and the damned will go to eternal punishment. And um, we have this kind of statement. But in comparison with um, coexisting traditions, like the classical tradition, there's not a great deal of detail. So in the Aeneid, for example, when Aeneas goes down to the underworld, he has it explained to him that people are punished according to their deserts and there are different gradations, different kinds of punishment. You can eventually attain the Elysian fields and so on. So in that sense, Christianity in its earliest days was quite vague. What, what, did, what did they find in the Bible? You just mentioned the Old Testament. What did they find in the Bible for what might happen? After you died. There was heaven well, and there was hell. The mentions of heaven and hell. Yes. Was there anything else specifically mentioned? Well, so strictly speaking, no. But there were a few passages that were taken over time to be indicators of purgatory, to be indicators of what came to be known as purgatory. So there's a moment in Matthew's Gospel when he says that there are some sins which shall not be forgiven neither here nor in the life to come. Is this in the Corinthians? Eh? Uh, so that bit is Matthew, that's 12.32, and that was just taken to indicate that perhaps we could still work on sins in the life to come. So that's a kind of side indication. But the bit in Corinthians that I think you're referring to, which is very famous, um, is when Paul says... If you have a foundation in Christ, men build upon that foundation in gold or silver or precious stones or wood or hay or stubble, and then they will be passed through fire and their works will be revealed in fire. And he says, you know, some will pass through fire and their works will survive and some will pass through fire and their works will be burnt and they will suffer losses, but then be saved, but saved as though through fire. And so this was taken to be the sense that Somehow in between this binary of heaven and hell, um, what you had done in your life would be seared through fire, purged, cleansed. There, 
There was a great surge in the idea of the development of purgatory in the, say, the second half of the 12th century onwards. Was there any connection between what what had been said in the scriptures and what, what was taken to be the case later in one or two cases? Or did it just come come up again? Um, there's absolutely connection, and it's a connection that's mediated through the church fathers and through um, writings that became canonical in themselves, even though they weren't actually in scripture. You know, Gregory the Great, many people wrote about this idea of purgatorial fire. So the idea of purging by fire after death had been there throughout. Um, what changes... In the scriptures? Well... In the scriptures, they're only there in that statement in Corinthians that, that I just gave you. You know, their works will be revealed by fire. They will be saved through fire. There's that. Um, there's also uh, a rich man in hell sees Lazarus in Abraham's bosom, which gives you the sense that there must be some kind of contiguous connection between the damned and, and the saved. Um, but that's really all there is. There isn't a great deal in scripture, but there was enough for people to work on it because... Really, you can understand why they had to work on it, because if you have, you know, in Aeneas Underworld, there's a gradation and you can improve and you can get better. In the Christian heaven and hell, it's binary. And the question is, who are you to say you're worthy of heaven? Helen Vauxhall Paul, let's stay in this area for a little while. Gregory the Great developed this idea. Gregory the Great developed this idea. Can you tell us when and how he did it? Yes, so um, Gregory wrote a work called The Dialogues, which was incredibly popular, and he produced this towards the end of the 6th century, probably in about 593 or 4. And much of the dialogues is stories about saints' miracles. But um, So the work is in four books, and it's in the final book that he really starts to talk about uh, ideas about what happens after death. And so some of these are kind of theologically oriented. So um, the passage that Laura mentioned from 1 Corinthians comes up there. Um, the work is called The Dialogues because it's in the form of a dialogue between Gregory and uh, someone called Peter who's asking the questions. And one of the questions that, that Gregory has Peter ask him is, must we believe that there is a purgatorial fire after death? And Gregory says, yes, we must believe this. And he talks about this with reference to this passage from the Corinthians. And he talks about the purging um, that happens and how sins are removed. But the other thing that made Gregory's dialogues really popular is that alongside this kind of theological discussion, he also has accounts of visions um, or kind of miraculous occurrences. So we hear, for example, about somebody who is... Um, the, the ghost, I suppose, of somebody who's died, who's uh, kind of working in a bathhouse and somebody else comes and encounters him and says, well, what, what, how, how are you here? What's going on? And um, he says, well, I'm, I'm suffering, you know, offer, offer things for my soul. And so the man goes away and does this. And when he returns to the bathhouse, this, this sort of ghost figure is no longer there. And he also tells us things about, for example, um, a monk named Justus who uh, has has kept some gold coins. This is discovered on his deathbed. Gregory says, well, in, this is not allowed. We're going to throw you into a pit um, afterwards. These are commentaries, though. We're throwing, <laughs> uh, the commentaries take over a lot of the Catholic churches, we know, and they sometimes give them higher authority than the Scriptures, although not by the Reformers. But there we are. There were also... Let's just refer to the bead man, the St. Drithelm, is that how you pronounce it? Drithelm, yeah. And let's talk about him and then 
then conclude that there isn't a great deal of evidence for purgatory in the scriptures and the Bible. But let's talk about St. Drisholm, because he's quite interesting. Drisholm, okay. Well, so Bede is writing in 731. He writes his ecclesiastical history and he records a vision that was supposed to have happened to a layman called Drishthelm in the late 7th century in Northumbria. And Drishthelm uh, died and when he was dead, he was shown around the afterlife by an angel and he was shown heaven, which he couldn't get into. It was kind of walled off and he was shown hell. He was also shown two separate kind of intermediate areas. And so one of these, which is looks like purgatory, is... A, a valley of fire and ice with souls leaping from one side to the other. And the other was a paradise. Was the other was a paradise, paradise yeah. yeah. And so that's that's the evidence so far. And it no, moves there's... through, it moves through. Uh, but it was... Can I just move to Matthew? Because I think we've established that it was there in Gregory, it was there in Bede, it was there in visions, it was there in commentators. There's very little there in the scriptures and, and reference that you have to dig hard at uh, in, 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 the, in, in the scriptures to get what you want out of it. Is that fair enough? Matthew, Matthew Traherne. Um, let's go back to what need was the idea of purgatory addressing? Well, I think there are certain human needs that the idea of purgatory really uh, helped to fulfil so one is about, I think, the idea of a single Christian community um, reaching from the living on earth through to the saints in paradise and across the dead in purgatory who were saved yet in the process of being cleansed in some way. And the, this c connection between these different groups was really emphasised by the kind of practices that developed around purgatory we know that praying for the dead was common in many religions, briefly outlined at the beginning of the programme. Is there something there that you find interestingly consistent and to do with a basic need, or was it a passage of history that's now gone? No, I, th I mean, I think, I think that, that idea of praying for the dead really is, what, is where purgatory comes alive for Christians in, in this period. Um, so the idea that really is, you can imagine it, I think, as part of the grieving process. So um, you, would, you would say prayers, hold masses on behalf of the dead in order to assist them um, as, as they progress through purgatory. And to, was to, it assisting them or assisting the person who was making the prayer? Well, depending on, I mean, it could be both, um, but I mean, both practices were, were, were common. So um, practices of penance would help to alleviate the process of purgatory for the people who are saying them. But then saying prayers for the dead would be on behalf of those who are in purgatory, not on behalf of those living on earth. So let's say in the middle Middle Ages, in the late 12th century, when it comes in, we've got this idea of the community, the living and the dead are part of one Christian community. Mm all of which are, are obedient to the absolute rules, if we can use that word, or wishes of God. And then purgatory develops a, a bigger life. It becomes a third place. That's right. Although, I mean, it's, it's interesting, I think, when you, when you look at the, the way in which theologians started to, to talk about or continued to talk about it, there was a certain amount of hesitancy about some of the points of, of detail about where purgatory Which data are we in was. now? Well, I mean, taking, for example, Aquinas, um, so the, the supplement to the summer. That's a bit later than it wants to be, Aquinas. I mean, what about when he kicks off a bit early, really kicks in? Uh, a bit earlier, about the 12th century. So the idea that it, that it that it's a, that it's an actual place um, yes. becomes quite firmly established yeah. um, at this time. And what sort of places do they have in mind? That there is this place called Purgatory, 
which is on Earth in... Well, I've, I've said it in the introduction, but it's better if you say it now, more authoritative. <laughs> well, it, well it's, a, it's a physical space. It's a space which um, is often conceived as a kind of um, a sort of annex of hell. So it's the same fires that are there in hell, but experienced differently for the souls in purgatory as would be experienced for the, for the souls in hell. It's a temporary state, crucially. But it is a place people see Sunday night at night on an Irish loch. It's maybe in the southern hemisphere. It's a place place. All sorts of traditions develop around around where it is, so so local traditions. There's also some evidence that uh, that there was a strong belief that that purgatory might take place in the in the place where the sins themselves were actually committed as well, although Aquinas comes to dismiss that very firmly. But theologians, that is, commentators inside and outside the church, you're beginning to get hold of it and shape it and elaborate it and develop it at this time. I think that's right. I think it's, it's, it's the, the, the ideas, as firm as they do become, are, are firmed up at, at this point, and that in turn is expressed in terms of the imaginative um, ideas around purgatory, how it comes to be seen by writers. Why, Laura, why do you think it was so attractive to people at that time? We've, we've been mentioning, and Helen's, Helen's very keen on this in her notes, mentioned the, its predecessors, its mm. precedents. There's precedents there, nothing comes of nothing, and that's I've had Gregory on. But it, they move in now. What is so attractive to them? Is it the idea or is it the power? So I think we can look at this from two sides. We can say that for the church, this was going to be a huge source of power and control and... Um, and a, a capacity to modify people's behaviour and affect people's behaviour. But what's equally interesting about purgatory is how much it was um, it appealed to the laity, it was taken over by the laity, it was such an exciting idea. And I think it's associated with broader changes in the 12th century, such that there had been an old idea that pen- penitence and repentance was something that you could do once before death, and it had to be total, and this was very frightening to people, they weren't sure they would ever have time. And over the 12th century, we get the doctrine of confession, the idea that you could repent more than once, that you could sin and confess and be forgiven and be set penances, which if you then couldn't complete in your lifetime, you could complete in purgatory. And so it just holds out more and more hope for salvation. And so purgatory, in that sense, is a place of hope, even though you're getting lashed, boiled in oil, so this is and not nailed to the key. floor of oil and things, yeah. whatever they say, your eyes sewn up. Yeah, I lived sound up, sorry. Uh, it's still a place of hope because you are. when you go through all this, you're going to get to heaven. Exactly, yeah. It's a place where you cannot yet see the face of God, but you live in hope and faith that you will. And in that sense, purgatory is with heaven and hell is somewhere else entirely. This idea, um, Helen, uh, spread across Western Christianity, but no, it was it was met with, it was rebutted by the Eastern uh, section of the church. Why was that? One of the reasons for this is that the Eastern churches never seem to have developed any kind of systematised understanding of what happens immediately after death in the way that the Western churches did. So the discussion between the Eastern and Western churches over purgatory is prompted really in the 13th century um, the the Eastern churches discovered this doctrine and it, and it comes really as something of a surprise and they don't really understand what is happening because as far as they were concerned, everybody was on the same page and suddenly it appears that actually the Western churches are doing something different. And there are a number of reasons that this might be, but I think the main one is connected with the differences in the way that the two churches understand sin 
and the way that they understand forgiveness of sin. So there are differences in the understanding of original sin between the two churches in terms of what's inherited and whether it's actual sin or simply guilt. But there are also differences in the way it's forgiven. So in the Eastern churches, one of the things that we see is that sin is forgiven kind of as a as a sort of, of a pardon, that we have a sort of God as emperor figure who sort of gives out pardon on a, on a kind of personal basis with a sort of personal appeal to God. In contrast, in the Western church, there's a slightly different understanding of the way that um, you have to atone for the guilt that attaches to sin and how this can kind of accumulate and then, and then how you can sort of work this off, if you like. So there are lots of things that are common to both, but it's that kind of final understanding of how you deal with sin and the effects of sin um, that ends up separating the two churches in the end. It wasn't part of the Great Schism, which was in the uh, middle of the 11th century, but it was a, an, another pulling away, wasn't it, from the Eastern Church? Yes, it was. And I think, I think as I said, I, I think the, the Eastern Churches really were quite surprised in some ways to discover that, that this idea was there in the West. And the Eastern Churches did have a tradition of literature that talked about various things that happened in the afterlife you get the idea of toll houses so people are called to account for a series of individual sins as they go through um, these sort of toll gates where the demons can interrogate them about their different sins and this sort of looks purificatory and it sort of looks a bit like purgatory but it's about accounting for sins and not necessarily kind of cleansing them in the same way. Just for a moment, Laura, can we go back to this idea of place? Mm. One of the most famous places was St. Patrick's uh, Purgatory. Yeah. He discovered this when he tried to convert the Irish, and the Irish didn't want to be converted, so he showed <laughs> them this cave where there was heaven and hell, and they began to be converted. But many centuries later, this was rediscovered, as it were, reopened up and became one of the places where purgatory might be. Yes, so a monk, uh, an English monk was writing in the early 1180s and he tells us this story which begins, as you say, in the 5th century when Patrick is given this access to this cave by which he can prove to the Irish the truths of the Bible. Um, and in the 12th century, the story moves forward to it and describes the quest of a knight, Owen, who goes into the cave for a night and a day and the visions he has. So he's warned that he'll be threatened by demons and that he might lose his life and soul at any moment and he should call on Christ whenever he's in doubt. And he witnesses people being nailed to the floor with burning nails and people hung up from iron hooks in their eye sockets and people being lowered into vats of molten metal. Can we stop now? Yeah, it's, it's not good. And he sees the entrance to hell, which is a flaming <coughs> hole in the ground from which souls kind of peep up and then are dragged back down again. And then one of the most vivid images, he sees a bridge which is so narrow you can't step on it and so slippery and sharp and is, is over a vast chasm. But he, he screws up his face and he walks across the bridge and the further he gets, the wider it gets and the easier it gets. And then he gets to the earthly paradise, this beautiful field, and someone says to him, I'm going to explain to you what you have seen. And he says, you have seen um, the mouth of hell from which no one returns and you have seen the punishments that people go through through in this place of purgatory I standing here in the earthly paradise have been through those places and I have now made it this far and then one day I will make it to heaven it's, So far in this programme already we've relied on visions as hard evidence mm. quite a few times that, that's fine, that's the way it's going Okay, <laughs> um, Matthew um, one thing that we can also rely on if we want to is one of the greatest poems in 
Western literature, <laughs> which is by Dante, and his great imagination of purgatory, which is, I, I, if I'd read it ever, I hadn't read it, for, let's say I hadn't read it, I read it again for this, it was absolutely wonderful. Can you tell us about it and why it's important? Absolutely. I mean, I think that uh, Dante's, Dan, when Dante thinks about purgatory, he really takes advantage of the fact that there's quite a lot of, um, there's a lack of specificity around certain aspects of purgatory, and then he, he uses that in order to really put his own stamp on what he thinks purgatory's like. And I think the important... What date are we talking about here? We're talking about the early, the, the first two decades of the 14th century. Yeah. Um, so he, it's not only that he develops a more elaborate and detailed account of purgatory than there has been before, but also that um, in many ways he overturns, I think, some of the expectations that his contemporaries would have had. So, of can purgatory. you tell us about Dante's purgatory? What yeah. is it? What happens there? So, Dante's purgatory is a mountain. Um, it's divided into three major sections. There's a section of waiting, sometimes known as anti purgatory, for those who need to wait for one reason or another. Either... Just to remind our listeners, these are people who have repented. So, they haven't going. And that, they haven't That's got right. to hell. Yeah. They haven't yet got into heaven. They're, right. never gonna, they're never going to be sent to hell because they're in purgatory, which is a waiting station. And if they get through all they're supposed to get through, they, they, they will get through all this. Or they will go to heaven. That's so right. That's the yes, deal. These, are, right. these are saved souls, but they're imperfect souls. Yes. And so in the major part of purgatory, up the mountain, Dante divides the mountain into seven terraces, each of which corresponds to a particular vice. And the are se- there the seven deadly sins? These are the seven, yes, and yes. Dante would think of these as, as vices which are habits to be corrected rather than sins to be punished, and that's a really important distinction to what happens in hell. Um, so he imagines various forms of suffering. It's really important, I think, that, um, they, that, that we don't think of these as punishments, like the punishments of hell, because the souls themselves willingly embrace them. And they, they're still fairly punishing. They're, they're absolutely horrendous. So the souls of the envious have their eyes sewn up. The souls of the proud are weighed down by great boulders. So they're humbled. They're humbled by that. Um, what do they do about lust at the top? Lust is a purifying fire. Um, right. And Dante, interestingly, <laughs> fills uh, the terrace of lust with near-contemporary poets. Um, so he's, he's wanting to say something about his immediate peer group, I think, there. Um, but the souls, the souls are actually joyful. When, when one of the souls finds himself talking about suffering and he corrects himself, he says, oh, I, I say pain, but I should say solace. How, this, how, was far, how radical was this? Did people say, hmm, we hadn't thought of it like that until now, and mm, I don't know whether you want to think of it like that, because it, it's very positive. You've just said the phrase, it's not suffering, it's sweetness. It's, all those things are terrible. You know you're going to get through them because there's nowhere else to go, um, except forward or upwards, I suppose you would say, wouldn't you? Um, so what did people think about Dante putting it the way he did? Well, I think very quickly after Dante's death, um, his, uh, the, the, the people who were commenting on him were, were at pains to stress the thing which Dante actually was very keen on. Uh, sorry, they, they, they contradict the thing that Dante, Dante's very keen on, which is they stress that he didn't mean it literally. Whereas Dante, throughout the text, throughout the Divine Comedy, is constantly stressing the truth of what he's seen. So I think that they recognise that this is in many ways a dangerous vision, um, not only because of the account of purgatory, but also because... So what's of, dangerous about it? About the, about Dante's, Dante's comedy, um, I, about I mean, the purgatory. about the purgatory. Well, well, I think there are certain um, there, there are certain ways in which it, it intersects with uh, what the church um, was practicing in terms of purgatory. So the uh, the really strong emphasis on 
um, soul's conversion, the kind of psychological change. Dante's not really so interested in things like indulgences. Hmm. OK, Laura. Yeah, just to add to what Matthew's been saying... I think poetry is on a a knife edge as a concept because on the one hand, the church needs to say the pains in poetry are worse than any pains on earth because the risk, of course, is that you're you're effectively saying to people, sin as much as you like, you can deal with it all after you've died. So the church had to keep saying, no, 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 you don't want to do that. You You want to die in as good a state as you can. But at the same time say, no, this is a gift from God. This is this is grace that he has given us that even in our imperfect selves, we can be saved. Mm. And so it's balanced on that edge. Briefly, can you tell us that there's a text that I've read in the notes of all three of you called the South English Legendary. Can you briefly say what that brings to bear on the subject? So this is a fascinating text. The earliest version, late 13th century, written in Middle English, clearly for dealing directly with the laity, has a version of the vision of Patrick's purgatory in it. But it also has a long description about All Souls Day, the the day when we think most of the dead. And this really conjures up a sense of community. So we have stories about uh, there is a man, a priest, who always prays for the dead when he goes through a churchyard. One day he's set upon by thieves in the churchyard and all the corpses rise up out of the graves and attack the thieves. Hard evidence again. Exactly, and the thieves run away in panic and the man goes home happy, um, which seems slightly unrealistic. But this sense of a, of a bonded community, there's a, there's a direction in this um, moment that says, you know, if... Someone cannot fulfil their penance before they die. Someone else who loves them can do it for them. Helen, Helen Foxhall Forbes, um, when we think of purgatory, we, nowadays a lot of us think about indulgences. There were various ways in which you on earth could help those in purgatory by prayer, by various ways, if you want to go through those quickly. But I'd like to get on to indulgences. Where did indulgences come in and how did they get so corrupted? So indulgences seem to start <clears throat> excuse me indulgences seem to start in the 11th century and probably around the time that All Souls Day which Laura just mentioned is kind of uh, coming into existence and they start out as a kind of forgiveness of sin and they're not initially intended to be forgiveness of sin for people who have already died they then end up being used for all sorts of things and we find them in a range of contexts, most famously in terms of forgiveness of sin when people go on crusade. And again, initially these are um, kind of free remissions of the sin of individuals. Um, and so, so if you, you do... However many people you kill, you're OK because you're on a crusade for Christ. More or less. Not entirely. Well, what else are you saying? But... <laughs> if you get indulgence when you're on a crusade, that's what it means, doesn't it? The point of an indulgence is that it remits you from some of the penance that you would have otherwise had to do. But it isn't as absolute as I suggested. It seemed like it in, from all your notes. In many second, cases, Laura, we've got to sorry, hammer this out here. In um, many cases, it's not as absolute. And actually, this is one of the things that people start to complain about. So, Well, let's get back to the mainstream well, indulgences, because it says in all your notes, it's absolute. You're going to crusade, you get rid of all your sins, but that's not the end of that. Indulgences, um, they began to be sold. Can you tell people about that? Yes. So eventually they do come to be sold, um, but not sold in the way that we would think of you pay money and you get something and that's simply how the transaction is understood. So what you're, is the sale then? You're, you're, so I... you're giving money as almsgiving. You're giving money to help something. In, help somebody in purgatory. 
uh, sometimes, but also to simply as an offering to the church. In return, that almsgiving, if you like, can then can then allow you remission of uh, some of that penance that you would have otherwise had to do. It's not until quite late in the Middle Ages that people really start um, offering indulgences or, or um, asking for indulgences for the souls of the dead. Um, and that's something that's then much more difficult in a way for people to um, kind of control, if you like, because it's not about penance that somebody otherwise would have given. If a priest gives you a certain penance and an indulgence takes one third of it off, then you still do two thirds of it. But if uh, if you have an indulgence that covers the sins of somebody who's in purgatory, this is suddenly much less quantifiable. That person can't confess anymore. That person is already in a state where penance is kind of done or not, if you like. Um, what happens? Why did it get such a bad name then? You're, you're, it's it, you're good. I mean, what you're saying is, is wonderful to listen to. But you got <laughs> an absolutely stinking name. As you could actually go a priest, you could. Uh, you could bribe somebody in the Catholic Church to let you off your sins and to help your friends and relatives, whoever they were, in purgatory to let them off and give them a shorter time so they went swiftly, more swiftly up the mountain. Absolutely. So there's a, and that there's bribery a real... was corrupt, and that's what, that's what, in a sense, that fired Luther's belly for the Reformation. Yeah. Well, so there's a really big difference between the theory of indulgences and the practice that's of indulgences. That's what I was trying to get at the practice, yes. And so in, in the theory, that's, that's, that's how it works, that's how I've explained but the problem is that in terms of uh, in terms of how people start to see these and how they start to be for example accessible to the laity is that you do have people who can who can kind of give them out um and and this is something that we see for example in Chaucer's Pardoner's Tale yeah um which i think is something that uh, Laura may be able to talk about well yeah. talk about the pardoner yeah, in well, Chaucer's Pardoner's Tale in, in the Canterbury Tales this is a, a totally corrupt man it's in about 1381 1383 and and he is Tell us what he is. Yeah, so he is a pardoner, a quaestor, yeah. who goes around the country. So they, these men were tasked with going around to raise money for particular charitable projects, um, often building projects in the church. And the idea, as Helen says, the idea was quite pure. The idea is that someone, a person would give money for this charitable project and they would do so in a spirit of charity and that therefore that would benefit their soul. I mean, the key thing about indulgences is that they don't remit sin. They What they do is remit penance. And that's that was an important thing. And that was why once indulgences, as Helen has said, once they were asked for for the dead... Um, the principle had already been lost because as a living person, you can be repentant, you can confess, and then you can have your indulgence instead of performing your penance. But it, but the dead person is not engaged in that. The dead person is just someone undergoing penance and now you're just paying to get them less penance. Um, and so you could... But, but that's the, quite important, isn't it? Instead of exactly, staying there 100 years, you stay there 10 years. That's quite important. Yeah, it was... Well, it was a huge thing. I mean, people were utterly convinced of the power of this. There's a, I was looking through some English wills and there was a man called William Fitzharry. In 1431, he left £50, which is £51,000 in today's money, to have someone to sing for his soul for five years in the hope that that would give him less time in purgatory. But Chaucer, clearly, you know, he lives at a time when people are aware that this has become corrupt. Um, in terms of building projects, famously um, at Rouen Cathedral, there's a tower that was known as the Butter Tower because apparently it had been built on the proceeds of um, giving people indulgences so they could eat butter during Lent. Um, and, you know, so clearly people would mock these things. Can I, can Matthew, Matthew Trahan, um, 
Can we bring Dante back into play here? Did he have anything to say on this? Well, Dante's really insistent on the idea that progress through purgatory depends on psychological change. So the souls in purgatory are there, the time that it takes, they undergo the suffering that's appropriate to the vice in order to have that vice corrected and to acquire um, an opposite virtue. The only exception to this rule, I think, is that he talks about how when prayers are offered by the living on behalf of the dead, souls can accelerate through purgatory, that their progress can be accelerated. But he insists on, on, I think, on on prayer as the means for doing this. Um, And I I think it shows that the idea for Dante, the idea of community, actually trumps anything else. Um, so it's a it's a collective endeavour, if you like, the progress through purgatory. But the idea of, of helping people to go faster, or yourself to go faster through purgatory, is in in Chaucer as well, isn't it? They're on a pilgrimage, and if you go on a pilgrimage, that helps you. If you're in confession, helps you. Various things. Like yes, absolutely. That. And this is one of the things that we find right back to the seventh century that the things that can help people, whether living or dead, that can be good for the soul are prayers, almsgiving, masses in particular, um, but also things like pilgrimage, anything that's kind or of. Or if you're helping building a church. I mean, precisely. Anything that's yeah. a kind of good deed or sort mm. of penitential act can help in that way. Chaucer. Um, is interesting because he is the only person I know of who uses purgatory actually in a humorous way as well as in a serious way. So he has the wife of Bath say that she was her husband's purgatory. <laughs> she says, I treated him so badly and I hope I hope that's let him off some of the punishment later. Mm. Um, but that, but it's just Chaucer doing that. Well, when Chaucer's writing about the pardoner, it's, it's, in, it's in his... It's in an easy way, in the sense that, oh, we all know about this. We all know this is crap. We all know that the pillowcase wasn't the veil of the Virgin yes. Mary. We all know these relics is a few pig's bones he picked up in a backyard and that sort of thing, and they're not the bones of any saint or anything. But it and is it, it seems to be... He is saying to, to his readers, who are a considerable number, in, well, in, um, look, this is all phony. Well... Absolutely. So the partner is a complete fraud, but he is also a very disturbing character. And I think that we underestimate the effect that the partner has on those around him. So he's he's uncanny. He's He makes people feel uneasy. And when he, at the end, says to them, he's said to them throughout, my relics are all fake, um, it's just pillowcases and sheep's bones. And then he says to them, anyway, so want to buy a relic? And the host goes crazy. He's very, very angry and insulted and they have a famous rout. But it seems to me that the host's anger expresses the fact that, you know, this is the edifice on which society is built. If we're all going to sit here and say, oh, come on, we all know this is fake, then we don't actually have anything else. Matthew? I think in, in common with what Laura's saying, I think one, one of the things that Dante, if I can bring Dante back in... Bring him in as often as you want. ...really wants to stress is that an easy sense of purgatory actually is, is a very dangerous thing. And that's why he has so many surprises in his purgatory. So he puts it in a completely different place to where people might have expected, putting it in the southern hemisphere. Diametrically he, opposite Jerusalem. Di- exactly. So it's, yeah. it's on a single axis. Um, he puts the Garden of Eden at the top of purgatory. So the journey through purgatory is a, is a very unexpected kind of journey. Um, it's a place of prayer, which... You go back to the beginning of the Garden of Eden, don't you? That's right. It's a yeah. sort. Of, it's a return That's in it, a way yeah. to the condition of, uh, of before the fall of man, yeah. um, and the, the the sense that as as you're reading Dante's Purgatory, he wants you to be thinking. Actually, this doesn't quite fit any easy sense I had 
um, is really important to, I think, how he wants people to internalise the idea of purgatory and bring it into their, their own lives. Turning to the last section of the programme, Alan, the, is it, Alan, is there a sense in which indulgences and purgatory, therefore, were the uh, trigger for the Reformation? They did they'd inflame Luther. I mean, he had a great number of theses. He pinned to the door and nailed the door. But this seems to have been the central one. It is, it is one of the main issues that Luther complains about, but there are lots of other things. Yeah, but let's that... stick to indulgences. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's, and purgatory. So this is a tricky one because Luther clearly gets very inflamed by indulgences, but it's not because he objects to purgatory, at least not initially. He's he's quite happy with the idea of purgatory. It's the indulgences for a while. that upset him. Yes, absolutely. I mean, for so the not... first few years, and then he's not happy with it And then he changes his mind. Yeah, yeah, and all the Protestants do, and they rule it out. It isn't in the Scripture. It doesn't exist. We're not going there. I mean, we're not, we're not, we're not going there as an idea. Yeah. yeah. No, that's, that's right. Um, and, I, and I think... This is precisely because of a change in thinking. And so where people start to say um, we need to look very clearly for what's in the scriptures, they they have changed the way that theology has been done uh, in some ways. So well, they want the to do it in a more purified way, don't they, to, to come back to that terrible way. Well, that's they a want value judgment. Well, it isn't, they, in my view. <laughs> no, you can say that. But they want to do it from the scriptures. That is the word of God is mediated by uh, through Christ. That is what they want to go back to, Luther in Germany yes, right. and then Tyndall in this country. Mm-hmm. Sorry, please, I interrupted you. So, no, that's fine. So, so, but, but I was saying, so this is a different way of doing theology. So where people have in the past looked, of course, used the Bible and the scriptures as the basis for what they work on, um, they've also uh, worked on a body of tradition. They've worked on a series of working things out. And that's why, for people in the Middle Ages, the fact that there wasn't a specific statement in the Bible that said this is purgatory and this is what it does wasn't a problem because there was enough evidence of other sorts, not not just from visions, but from other kind of working things out and the sort of logic of, of sin, of grace, of penance that, that makes this important. But when we have this change at the Reformation and, and people are saying it has to be in the Bible, then yes, that's when purgatory becomes very problematic. Fine. Laura? But just to add to that, of course, this is now hugely dangerous because, of course, as we've discussed, as Matthew said, purgatory has been serving a human need and, above all, connecting the living with the dead. And so Thomas More, arguing for purgatory, said, you know, this is where your parents are. How can you abandon them? This is where everyone you've loved is. Um, and so that explains, I think, the, the sort of fudge over purgatory in the early days of the Protestant Reformation. Um, the Ten Articles of the Church of England in 1536 said, well, we do think you can pray for the dead. We're just not sure where they are. Because the idea of cutting everyone off from their dead relatives, <coughs> from all the people they've loved, the idea of slicing through that community... Um, is horrifying, was horrifying to ordinary people. It is extraordinary, though, that you have this massive edifice, which controlling edifice mm. to do with money, to do with power, to do with interference, to do with controlling not only the living and the dead, but anybody, <laughs> the whole lot, just uh, attacked and crumbles fairly quickly. Matthew? It crumbles, except in the sense that, of course, that the Catholic Church reasserts um, the idea of purgatory in the in the in the Catholic Counter Reformation. So I think it's really interesting how that takes place. So when the Council of Trent talks about purgatory, it's very it's it's absolutely clear that purgatory 
exists. It, it needs to be. It needs to be part of Catholic doctrine. But it also they also emphasise um, the dangers of thinking about it in too much detail. So for preachers to talk too much about the details of what happens in purgatory, where it is, all of these things that we couldn't possibly know, is a dangerous thing for uneducated, simple souls. Helen? Yeah, so one of the things that we've seen throughout the Middle Ages is uh, the importance of fire in purgatory. And this is something that I think starts to kind of tail off from that point, that people start to be less focused on the fire and more focused on the function. What does purgatory do rather than how exactly does it do it, if you like? Does it, does it ameliorate the horrible tortures and so on as it goes on? As the counter-reformation comes back, do we still have people nailed to boiling oil floors and all the rest of it? We still get images of souls in purgatory. Um, but one of the interesting things about representations of purgatory is that they start to, we start to see much less of the punishment and much more of the, the kind of hopeful aspect of purgatory. So people are being released, and that's one of the ways you can often tell the difference between purgatory and hell is this idea of hope, as Laura said before, so that people are able to get out. And this, and this kind of escape from purgatory is, is ultimately the point. The point is not to be there forever. It's because you go through and then leave again. What legacy does this have today, Laura, in the Catholic Church, purgatory? Well, in the Catholic Church, it's still very important in terms of, you know, it's it's vital to the sense that we can be saved even in our imperfections, you know, that, and that's why it's very important, as Matthew said, that we don't, you know, there's no, not focus on torturous detail and so on and quantification. The quantification has been pushed away very firmly to say, no, this is, this is an abstract concept which indicates how God's grace can work um, to save us from ourselves. Is it still thought of in any way as being a place? Well, people still go on pilgrimage every year. 15,000 people a year go to Loch Derg, where St. Patrick's Purgatory is. So obviously these places still have a call in people's minds. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Laura Ash. Thank you, Helen, Boxall Forbes and Matthew Trahan. Next week we'll be discussing enzymes. Excuse me. Enzymes are proteins that speed up chemical reactions in living organisms. And thank you for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. Thank you all very much. (laughs) Thank you. It's difficult to get a serious grip on with the evidence base, isn't it? What in particular? Well, in the... The The uh, idea of purgatory itself? The ideas, yes. I mean, as an idea, it's wonderful. Uh, And the way it's worked out by Dante is... But as evidence, as the evidence that that is brought to bear is, is tenuous. It's tricky. I mean, one of the things that we see... And what would you call it, Evans, truly? Visions and intimations it's not and... that kind of phenomenon, But I was going to say, I mean, yeah, it's not, it's not like yeah, that. Yeah, but that I mean, doesn't mean... Does that mean it doesn't have to follow rules of evidence? Uh, yes, because it's faith. <laughs> I see. All right, so we, we abandon all <laughs> that. I see. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> I, mean, I think medieval Christians would, 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 you know, in the West would have seen, would have seen evidence as a, as a different kind of thing. I mean, yeah. tradition yes, is a different, has a different weight, it's, you know. It's, yeah, it is still a kind of evidence and this kind of, this kind of working things out, this sort of rational and logical argument is really important that if you, I mean, it's actually, people do this now as academics. If you have a thing and you talk about it and you think about it, you also make logical and rational arguments from whatever it is. And so one of the things that people think about is, um, for example, how penance works or how sin works. You have to kind of work from that. There's all sorts of stuff that the Bible doesn't tell us. And so people are always having to take one passage of the Bible and then kind of work something from it. Um, and one of the things that's interesting in terms of the evidence, this this discussion of 
uh, fire in the Corinthians initially seems to be applied to the idea of the purging of souls at the last judgment, not in purgatory. So it's something that's kind of delayed until the end of time. And as people work through the concept of prayer for the dead and, and what it does, that's when they start to apply it to the interim and to say, OK, so actually this is something that's affecting souls immediately and it's not being held off until the end of time. There's a real timing problem just with things like the harrowing of hell as well you know so at some point in history christ goes into hell and brings some people out of hell um you know where where are the people's souls who died before christ and then um where are you if you die now and and on it goes the timing the question of limbo debates about whether limbo debates about whether plato was a good man even though christ hadn't been born when he was born (laughs) that's sort of that's a bit that's a fairly big debate what about the burning of martyrs now what function is fire that i i thought in a i'm going to be told exactly what that one of the reasons for burning is that the body therefore was destroyed and couldn't uh, couldn't meet the soul on the day of judgment was that one of the reasons for burning martyrs the respect for the body was a reason not to burn corpses and why corpses were not usually burnt. Therefore, burning was a heinous, heinous punishment. Um, there, there were people who argued that that meant that the body couldn't be resurrected, but that also easily, that seems ridiculous because that implies that God can do some things but not others. Um, but it was absolutely, it was a shaming punishment to destroy the body in this way. Uh, in the 5th century, Augustine states very clearly that whatever happened to the bodies of the martyrs, they will all be gathered mm. up together and they will meet the soul on the day of judgment. So this is this is quite kind of summarily dismissed. But there's wonderful arguments like the soul, how can fire possibly burn a soul? I uh, think it's, so it's obviously available to be read as metaphorical fire, you know, the image of something which um, strips away all that is temporary or finite or fragile and leaves only the core, leaves only truth. Um, so in that sense, it's available as a metaphor. And in lots of ways, that's what's so dramatic about what Dante did, that he found a he found a really humane way of thinking about actual literal physical punishments, which is a bizarre combination. You'd think either you can be humane and say, oh, come on, it's all a metaphor, or you can be vicious and say, no, you really are being burnt unendingly. Mm. But I'm just intrigued by how you, what, what the soul is, that it can, be, it can both be burnt by fire and resist fire. I'm just not sure how literally people take these. Um, I mean, one of is the it things important that's... to you how literally people take these? Matthew, you're trying to get in, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 please, please finish. All I was going to say is that one of the key things where we actually see purgatory kind of um, in a geography of the afterlife, if you like, in these visions, that, that it's always separate from heaven and therefore separate from God. And I think that's actually much more important than the burning. And it's the same in Dante, where people are trying to move towards the Garden of Eden, trying to... To, to move but they're not really separate heaven. from God because the promise is they'll get there. But they are separate at that moment, and it's mm. that it's that absence of God which kind of inflicts the punishment, if you like. So mm. I mean, they're, they're looking for the for the full beatific vision. That's what that's what they want. For, sorry, the beatific vision, so right. being in the full presence of mm. and having full sight of of God. Um, but what I was going to say is about um, the the sort of physical suffering in the afterlife, the physical suffering of the soul, is that actually in the in the thirteenth, fourteenth centuries there's there's a lot of debate around what this might mean for the relationship between the body and the soul Um, and certainly Dante um, comes up as you'd expect with a very clear explanation as to how it is that the soul's in the afterlife can actually suffer physically. So, what I mean, the, the stark example that prompts his discussion is that in the terrace of gluttony, the souls become emaciated. 
which is a which is a paradox, isn't it? When you when you put it in those terms, um, but it's explained that this. I mean, in, the soul and the body are so closely bonded um, that the moment that the body dies, the soul lands in the afterlife, and it, it projects a kind of aerial body which still has the sensory capacities of, of, of the physical body. The ideas are all wonderful. I mean, wonderful ideas. You just think, God, I wish you could prove it in some way. Mm. <laughs> but you can't. Well, but, but, but this thing, I mean, this thing about the, the body and the soul, I think, is a, is a really interesting sort of space to inhabit mentally because, because it, any idea that the body and the soul are two separate things mm. is, just, is, is just alien. Um, and that, that, I think, can transform how, how you well, think about the human science person. science tells and, us, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, the mind and the body cannot be separated. People. I think the body is about to be satisfied with the great offer from, the, from Simon <laughs> Tillerson, the producer, who makes a magnificent offer here. Well, I'd have to your coffee in <laughs> There are many more religion and discussion programmes from Radio 4 to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio4.